this week together so far we've been exploring the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of wisdom, and the teachings of love. It said that um, Buddhism has two wings like a bird has two wings, wisdom and love, and um, that you need both wings to fly. And so the wisdom practices, um, the Vipassana practice, uh, learning deeply about the nature of life, about the way things are, about uh, suffering and freedom from suffering. And then we have the uh, teachings on love, which encompass metta, loving kindness, um, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. We've mentioned that there's these four qualities of, of love. And we've talked some about metta, and we've briefly mentioned compassion, but today I want to go more deeply into this uh, second flavor, you could say, of love, which is um, compassion, which is the flavor of metta when it meets suffering. So we have this basic friendliness of heart that we develop, and then that basic friendliness of heart meets suffering. I mentioned yesterday that to cultivate uh, metta, we focus on what's good. To cultivate compassion, we focus on suffering. And so I want to really explore deeply in this talk today, uh, what is compassion? I remember one time I, I, I had this realization that I had this kind of idea what compassion is, but that I really didn't know. You know, I had this concept, compassion. I'm like, well, yeah, it's kind of a warm feeling, a nice caring feeling in the face of suffering. And that's true. But what I've realized over the years is that we can continue to explore compassion for years and deepen our understanding of what it is. So we can say that compassion encompasses connection, so it's connecting with suffering rather than um, rejection of suffering or hardening. (laughs) So it has this softening in the face of suffering rather than barricading or um, um, pushing against, right? More like softening into. It has a quality of care and a quality of tenderness. But it can also have a quality of fierceness and dignity and action. So we're going to explore all those qualities today. You've noticed that as we open to the way things are, as we um, sit here and allow ourselves to experience life, you could say, in its raw form without the distractions and the filters, but just right here, just this, we discover that life is kind of wild, and we discover that it includes beauty and joy and enchantment, and we discover that it um, contains sorrow and pain. And to stay in touch with reality... With truth, we have to be strong enough to be able to connect with suffering. We have to be strong enough to be able to hold all of it. Well-developed compassion can give us that strength. Compassion is strong in its uh, softness. So we usually think that what is strong is something that's hard. But something that's hard is brittle. It can be shattered. Something that is soft can bend with circumstances, can be flexible, can take a lot more. So the softness of compassion um, carries its strength the strength of flexibility, of, of accommodating truth, of being alive and breathing and touching reality. In fact, I really don't know how we can do this practice without well-developed metta and compassion. To me, it seems like it would be pretty impossible. 
metta and compassion make the make this world make reality um, uh, safe enough <laughs> to relax into to explore they make reality a safe home Paul uh, Mark Nepo a modern mystic says that with compassion our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land, in which reality can land. We so often have default settings of fear. I think it's um, our mammalian training, <laughs> our mammalian biology to have this default setting of fear. Uh, metta and compassion can become our new default settings. And in this way, the world becomes a safe home for us. The strongest compassion is embodied compassion, embodied metta. So learning what compassion feels like in the heart, feels like in the mind, and feels like in the body. And I like to explore it all the way down to the cellular level. What do the cells feel like when they're full of metta or compassion? Like marinating our cells in compassion. So it's not an intellectual understanding, though some conceptual understanding can help guide us in a certain way. But as we've been saying, it's this embodied, alive, quality. So I'm going to talk about different aspects of compassion, what I call the four faces of compassion. And I'm going to talk about um, receiving and, and um, encouraging for ourselves a kind of embodied understanding of these different qualities. But I also want to emphasize that it's okay not to know what compassion is. It's okay to explore it and be curious. And it's okay in our exploration of compassion, which you've all been doing, by the way. Know it or not, when suffering's been coming up, you've been trying to figure out how to relate to it. So what happens in our exploration of compassion, just like with metta, is we sometimes feel compassion and we sometimes feel um, near misses, <laughs> like um, pity or despair. Those are kind of near misses. <laughs> they're not exactly compassion, but sometimes they seem like they are because there is this connection with suffering. Or sometimes there's... Um, farther misses of, of overwhelm or you could say these are um, occupational hazards in our exploration and we actually develop the capacity to, to be okay with that that at times we're going to miss and at times it's, it's going to be painful and then we regroup and figure out how to get going again. So let's talk about the four faces of compassion. So these are four archetypes that I found useful for me in um, cultivating these qualities of compassion within myself. And so I call the four archetypes Mary, Tara, Kuan Yin, and Tinkerbell. <laughs> <laughs> so they may not, we'll get to Tinkerbell, everybody always wonders what Tinkerbell's doing in that list. <laughs> um, so these four may not correspond to kind of traditional views of these archetypes. This is very much my subjective um, experience of them. And uh, I like, for example, I recently got some feedback that Tinkerbell is a little more complicated than I thought she was. No, that wasn't what I remembered from being six years old and watching Peter Pan. Um, <laughs> so you might have your own archetypes or you might connect with mine. It doesn't really matter what the symbol is. It's like it matters how, um, how we respond to it. And so these symbols for me can help us have this deeper feel for compassion and slowly learn to inhabit these facets uh, 
ourselves. And so we receive these qualities through the whole being so that we can know our own potential because we all have this potential to express these four qualities. And so we, we, we also see where we hit the limit with them, where, where we can't um, go further, where there's hardness, and then we, you know, p- perhaps condition beliefs or unworthiness, or, and then that's the edge that we hold and hold with awareness and kindness and watch and allow to change. So let's start with the first one, Mary. So for Mary, Mary the archetype, you could say it's a mother archetype. So it's a warmth of compassion, like a mother feels for, or may feel for a child. I don't always, but may feel for a child. And so there's this kind of softness and great kindness. And this um, universal acceptance. So I have a statue of Mary way back in my garden next to this rock. It's kind of just back there with a protective quality, perhaps. And the arms are like this. So that's that universal acceptance, that holding anything. Now, for some people, the the Mary archetype might not work or the mother archetype. I recently taught a one day and I was giving various um, options for this aspect and and a a young man said to me, he said, I don't really have a good like female archetype for mothering, but for me, Mr. Rogers works. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys remember Mr. Rogers, <laughs> but he w- he's a, it has a very much a mothering quality. <laughs> so if you want a masculine representative, Mr. Rogers, you can never imagine him like turning away if they're suffering, right? He would be there, be a good neighbor. <laughs> so we get the sense of that kind of softness. And... I've done a lot of um, practice with Kuan Yin. Uh, so, um, Kuan Yin is Mary. Now I'm getting them mixed up because I got Kuan Yin in a different category. But this this idea of um, this warmth, and for me, it's it's like receiving um, warm honey and having it poured over my head. If honey doesn't work for you, maybe like maple syrup better. <laughs> but, but for me, it's this warm honey. And then it's like, how far can it seep into my being, into my heart, into my cells? And like practicing, like receiving that, receiving it. Can we let in this kind of warmth, this honey quality? So what we find, no, first of all, I want to say, what we can find with this warm honey is that it can start to melt the hardness inside, the hard edges. We all have lots of hard edges. There's this teacher named Anun Thugtin, and I was on retreat last year in the mountains. I had a bunch of Dharma talks, and I was listening to one of his Dharma talks. And um, the whole Dharma talk is about the ice mountains in our hearts. He's like, we all have ice mountains in our hearts. <laughs> Practices to melt the ice mountains. And there was something about that image that I totally related to. The warm honey starts to melt the ice mountains in our hearts. So if you've been worrying that your heart is closed or hard or everything, join the club. (laughs) He said, we all have ice mountains and we're melting the ice mountains. That's all he said in the whole talk, really. He just kept saying that. <laughs> he did have this one part about how he liked to travel to New York. Or when he traveled to New York, he always made the host take him on the subway because he liked to see all the people. <laughs> and kind of you got the idea that he would just sit and feel compassion towards them, right? That he, he had, has this big compassionate heart. He just kept saying, we got to melt the ice mountains. 
had this deep voice that I'm not, I can't quite do. <laughs> so we practice letting in the warmth and, and just starting to melt the ice mountains. And then we find the places where there's hesitation. So I, I, when I've practiced with this warm honey, then sometimes it'll come along and there'll be a place where it'll be like, no, no honey here. <laughs> like a, a, a place where it's so interesting to explore, like what is that place? Where is that place that we can't let it in? So there's a couple of different variations I've found. One is... Um, I hit my edge of how vulnerable my system is willing to feel. And my system wants the hardness for protection. And that's okay. We can let that be. We're, as humans, we're ambivalent about softening. I mean, when I say softening, some of you are like, oh, that really sounds good. And others are like, uh-uh. <laughs> and then within each of we, us, we have both. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know, because softening means more connection, right? The hardness, the barriers, are, it's so separate. And yet, <laughs> softening? Oh. <laughs> Not sure about that. Sometimes I have conversations with the hardness, the hardness in the heart, and I'll say, you know... Maybe you want to consider softening a little bit. <laughs> and the heart will be like, oh, why would I want to do that? <laughs> and, and they'll be like, well, it's kind of lonely, isn't it? Behind that barricade. And hardness will say, well, you got a little bit of a point there. <laughs> and so you kind of negotiate with your own heart. I can't boss it around. I keep saying that, I know. But we keep trying. We keep hoping. The heart likes respect. So the hardness says, the hard heart says, well, I'll think about it. Maybe, maybe. And then, um, since we have such a natural desire for opening, the heart does take a chance, usually. It will take a chance and it'll test. Hmm, maybe I can let in a little bit more warmth, melt a little bit, one of those peaks in the ice mountains in the heart. So it's a practice because we come up, the other um, hardness we can come up with is unworthiness. Or not forgiving ourselves. I think it's the same thing. The unworthiness says something like, eh, you've fucked up way too many times. <laughs> You're not worthy of this warmth. I think that practice is a process of continual self-forgiveness. We have to forgive ourselves hundreds of times a day. Right. So you catch yourself on a long train of thought and you kind of want to beat yourself up about it. Oh, I wasn't being mindful. Was, ah, forgiveness. Really, forgiveness means um, I'm human. That's what it really means. Self-forgiveness. I'm human. It's like we allow ourselves to be human. When I first came to practice, I wasn't so interested in being human. It didn't look like a very good deal. I thought that maybe, just maybe, I'd been dropped off on this planet by accident. (laughs) And my peeps were going to come back and get me at some point. (laughs) I was a little upset with them. (laughs) Because they left me here, right? I would say my years in practice are about becoming more and more human, or more and more willing to accept being human. Because it's a messy business, isn't it, being human? I'd hope for something better.
Lynn Jensen, one of my favorite um, Zen authors from Portland, Oregon, says, I'm a partner now in the brotherhood and sisterhood of inevitable error and recovery. Our human lives are 10,000 beautiful mistakes. There's um, a great book called Tattoos on the Heart, written by Gregory Boyle. So he's a Jesuit priest, um, or Catholic, maybe he's Catholic. Anyway, he's a priest. He's Catholic? Yeah. Joanna knows, because she is to work for his organization. So he um, uh, is based in Los Angeles and does a lot of work with um, gang members and ex-gang members and started this... uh, these industries called homeboy industries. And at first, sometimes I have some hesitation of reading stories like this because it can, it can sound a little bit like um, WMWP. Have you heard that phrase? Well-meaning white person <laughs> who goes in to rescue the poor people or something, right? But he's the real deal. I checked it out with Joanna a few minutes ago and she said yes. that that he is I mean you read his book and it's like he's thrown his lot there and he's not separate he's not like it's not it's not pity you know pity's a near miss on compassion it's 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 right there compassion feeling with um so anyway she used to work in homeboy industries she taught him meditation and did some initiation groups or something like that yeah, I got it off. It wasn't initiation. What was it? It was initiation. Okay. Rites of passage. Same difference, right? <laughs> so here's a story that I just love. So he talks about one time he went to um, give a, he was in South America for some reason, and um, they wanted him to give a mass in the high mountains of um, Bolivia. Uh, most of the Indians were Quechua. Uh, Anyway, he went and gave this mass, and and for some reason he thought he had just done a horrible, horrible job, and he was just feeling terrible about himself. And he says, um, and all his friends, for some reason, oh, he wound up talking to this woman for a long time, and all his friends left, and he had to walk down the mountain by himself. He goes, I am alone on the top of this mountain, stuck not only without a ride, but in stullifying humiliation. I am convinced that a worst priest has never visited this place or walked this earth. So having a little bit of a doubt attack, hindrance attack. He was having a hindrance attack. Then he says, with my backpack snug on my shoulder and spirit deflated, I begin to make the long walk down the mountain and back to town. But before I leave the makeshift soccer field that had been our cathedral, an old Quechua campesino, seemingly out of nowhere, makes his way to me. He appears ancient, but I suspect his body has been weathered by work and the burden of an Indian's life. As he nears me, I see he is wearing tethered wool pants with a white button shirt greatly frayed at the collar. He has a rope for a belt. His suit coat is coarse and worn. He is wearing urachis, and his feet are caked with Bolivian mud. Any place that a human face can have wrinkles and creases, he has them. He is at least a foot shorter than I am, and he stands right in front of me and says, Tatay. This is the Quechua word for padrecito, a word packed with cariño, affection, and a charming intimacy. He looks up at me with penetrating, weary eyes and says, Tatay, gracias por haber venido. Thanks for coming. I think of something to say, but nothing comes to me which is just as well, because before I can speak, the old campesino reaches into the pockets of his suit coat and retrieves two fistfuls of multicolored rose petals. He's on the tip of his toes and gestures that I might assist with the inclination of my head. And so he drops the petals over my head, and I'm without words. He digs into his pockets again and manages two more fistfuls of petals. He does this again and again, and the store of red, pink, and yellow rose petals seems infinite. I just stand there and let him do this, staring at my own urachis, now moistened with my tears, covered with rose petals. Finally, he takes his leave, and I'm left there alone, with only the bright aroma of roses. 
For all the many times I would return to Tirani and see the same villagers over and over, I never saw this old campesino again. That story manifests to me um, an aspect of what I'd call Mary um, of mercy. I think of this word mercy a lot when I think of compassion. Mercy's like complete forgiveness, deserved or undeserved, it doesn't matter. And these rose petals represent that to me, just forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness and acceptance. So if warm honey doesn't work for you, maybe rose petals, you can try rose petals. Really, you can do your metta practice that way. Just having rose petals dropped on your head. So we can um, familiarize ourselves with this warmth of compassion. How do we let it in? How do we know what it feels like in an embodied way? And then we offer that. We can offer that. We can offer that to ourselves, to the world. In our practice, for example, when suffering comes up, maybe, let's start easy, maybe a knee pain. (laughs) And so we notice that our usual reaction to a knee pain is, I hate it. It's hardness. A heart, ice mountain activates. It's like, is there a possibility that the awareness could have a soft or warm quality to it? Can we touch the edges of the suffering? I sometimes say it's like touching the edges of the suffering with cotton balls, if that image works. It's like instead of with a hammer, <laughs> you know, we like go at it, oh, I'll get rid of this. It's like, can you touch it with cotton balls or some image or honey, warm honey? Or what about loneliness? Loneliness arises, and of course it's unpleasant. We want it to go away. What's it like to touch the edges of loneliness with warmth? So the mindfulness can have this warm quality embedded in it. And we can, we can play with how far we go in or what, how much on the edges we stay to be able to access that. And again, it might be one or two seconds, as I've said before. Those one or two seconds are powerful because it's, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a, it's a whole shift in, in our way of being. So don't underestimate the power of one or two seconds of softness around loneliness, softness around a knee pain. In this way, we learn how to um, accommodate the truth of suffering. Later, we'll get to, you do something too. <laughs> you don't, we don't just accommodate, but part of, a, a part of compassion is recognizing and accepting that suffering is here. Not a passive acceptance, but a, a recognition that suffering is here. And then meeting it with something softer or warmer. So that, that was all the first one, the, the Mary, the mother archetype, the campesino with the rose petals, Mr. Rogers. So let's balance this kind of softness and warmth with the power of compassion. So we may have this unconscious belief that compassion is kind of on the wimpy side. Um, It actually is a very um, powerful quality. And we can bring that aspect to the forefront as needed. And so I represent this by Tara. She's a, 
a Tibetan something or the other, <laughs> bodhisattva deity, whatever they have. I'm, I'm not real up on Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> um, but sometimes I think of her as like, she, she, she just streams of compassion come out of the heart. And they're strong, these strong, powerful streams of compassion. And, and there's a way that when we connect with this aspect of compassion, we understand compassion as a powerful and empowered state of mind that um, can meet any suffering and not be crushed by it. So this kind of compassion is um, wider and stronger than any obstacle. So we can feel that ourselves, energetically ourselves. We can learn to call that forth. It's, it's, it's a, it could be a kind of like, I will not be crushed by this suffering. So there's, there can be a sense of dignity, maybe a fierceness, determination in there. When I was writing this talk a few months ago, I flashed back to... Um, I don't know, it was a while ago, there was a, um, an image going around the internet and it was from a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Baton Rouge and there's this young um, African-American woman and she's standing up to these riot police and she's standing um, in this and just, she made me think of Tara, her, her um, she, there's so much power in her stance, there's this dignity and poise and this I will not be moved power and um, the wind is kind of blowing she has this flowing dress on so the wind's kind of blowing back and there's these four um, riot police in front of her and you can almost see her force field that they can't go beyond it's they're all like kind of like this <laughs> because her the, the strength of her dignity and I think compassion is in there that's my projection maybe, but that's what I felt. It might have a fierce compassion. So so the energy so strong that the police couldn't couldn't enter that field. She was protected by this power of compassion. Or another example recently, Emma Gonzalez, when she um, gave the talk on the mall in um, Washington and um, stood for all those moments of silence. If you've all seen the video, it it happened a while ago, but I think it was pretty well known. Um, Wow, so much power and dignity and strength. Yeah, there might have been some anger in there too, but there was also this fierce compassion. She was doing this to try to protect others. There's so many beautiful examples. Just recently, this may have happened after you went on retreat, but there was a viral video of a of a young Swedish um, woman who um, was on a plane where it was uh, where there was a a Afghani man being deported back to um, Afghan, and she was like, "I will not sit down until this person is off the plane." You can't send them back there. And, and they took them. They, they, she got what she wanted. She was like, I will not sit down. She filmed this whole thing and she was terrified. You could tell she was terrified. And yet she had fierceness. So this power of compassion helps us counteract um, our conditioned tendencies at times to fall into despair in the face of suffering or to fall into aversion or some way collapse. We, we, we do have this, um, con- this conditioning to kind of collapse sometimes when they're suffering. And so remembering this quality can help us counteract that tendency.
And when we can connect with this power of our own heart and feel this strength and power in our own heart, then we feel resilient. We can deal with what's difficult. Usually I think we're much stronger than we assume. Fear keeps us from pulling back our edges. One of the beauties of a retreat is we learn how strong we are. If you're still here, you're strong. Because <laughs> it's not a picnic, it's not easy to do this, right? So we learn our own strength by, by meeting the suffering that comes up. I hate to say it, but it seems to be a prerequisite for, for, for strength is, is this meeting the suffering. It's nothing like a little suffering to, <laughs> to, to, to call forth the resources that we have within ourselves. And so we can call up this fierceness in our own practice when we need it. So something's difficult in our practice. And there's some voice says, I can't do this, I can't deal with this. And then it's like, at times we can learn to call forth, actually I can do this. I won't, I won't be crushed by this. And we learn a, a certain kind of dignity in the face of our own suffering. And this dignity counteracts any tendency towards self-pity or despair. We start to respect that all lives have suffering, including our own, and we can't avoid it. I had kind of hoped also I could get through life without suffering. <laughs> That's part of the problem of the human conditioning, right? It includes um, joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. And then we can call up this fierceness too when, when we're living in um, circumstances that are challenging, where there is a lot of suffering. This fierceness of the heart that says, I can, I can stay engaged, I can, I won't be crushed by this. Part of the way that, that this fierceness also develops is by um, we enlarge, I would say practice enlarges our hearts. We start out with them kind of protected, not so big. <laughs> and as we learn to um, touch suffering with mindfulness, touch suffering with care, we find that our hearts can hold so much more. There's an old metaphor, a Buddhist metaphor of, of if you put a cup of salt in a gallon of water, a cup of salt in a small heart, it's going to be very salty. And, mm. But you put a cup of salt in a lake, a very large heart, right? It can, it can hold it, it doesn't alter it. So we have um, the ar- archetype of, of Mary or the warmth of compassion. We have the archetype of Tara or the, the power uh, of compassion. And then the third one is Kuan Yin. So Kuan Yin is shown in different ways, but one of the ways that you see her is with all the arms and the hands because she wants to serve, she wants to help. Or the other way you see her often is she has um, one one of her knees up like this, and it's said because she wants to be ready to jump up to help when they're suffering. And so I think of Kuan Yin aspect of compassion as um, um, action, response. 
So part of the power of compassion is um, the wish to alleviate suffering and the, the doing something. As I said, it's not a passive um, quality. It's one that includes response. Thich Nhat Hanh said compassion is a verb. So it motivates us to act. True compassion motivates us to do something to alleviate um, suffering. I think without action, compassion can be disempowering. Action is part of the power of compassion. Because even if things don't turn out the way we want them to when we act, there's something about the taking action itself that's important. It counteracts again the, um, the tendency to collapse or crumble in the face of suffering. There's so much we can say about this aspect of compassion and we're going to save most of it for, for later, the last day. But what we can look at is what does this action aspect of compassion mean in our own practice here? So, so suffering uh, comes up of some kind. Let's say, um, let's try a different kind of suffering than the ones I listed. Um, Give me a suffering. (laughs) Anxiety arises. Okay. So um, anxiety arises. And um, the action would be, what is the compassionate, wise and compassion action to take when suffering, when anxiety arises? So we're looking for um, kind of clarity, clear discernment and compassion, right? So when anxiety arises, sometimes we'll kind of like keep pushing against it and pushing against it, and it gets worse and worse, right? So maybe when anxiety arises, the compassionate response might be to just back off a little bit. Maybe go look at a flower or do something simple, right, that, that soothes the system. Have a cup of tea, something that helps the nervous system kind of regulate itself. Look at a flower, go for a walk. I know, the, you know, the options here are limited, but you do the best you can. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes there's a lot of anxiety and maybe the right thing to call forth is, is a kind of fierceness and say, that might be the most compassionate thing. It's call forth a kind of fierceness that says, I'm larger than this. Right? Or the warmth, calling forth the warmth, the compassion. So when anxiety, I've worked with anxiety a lot, I know it quite well. I sometimes make my awareness like a bubble. So this is my awareness, and, and, and the edges of it are, are warmth, warmth, um, mindfulness. And then I say to anxiety, you can move around in there and do whatever you want, because anxiety moves a lot, right? The body moves a lot of physical sensations, a lot of thoughts. And um, if you try to follow them, uh, you get kind of crazy, and sometimes it increases. It's not helpful. Um, but so, so if we can be with the knowing of anxiety, the, the kind of global, just like, hi, anxiety, okay, what do you want to do? Go ahead, I'm here, I'm just kind of holding you. <laughs> that would be the warmth aspect of compassion, right? Anyway, we respond. That's, that's the compassionate thing. We respond in the way that seems to be the most helpful, the most skillful. We might try something, it might not work. We try something else. It's okay to make mistakes. Just, put a, just let a few rose petals <laughs> fall on you. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Oh, I have another story. Do I have time to read it? 
No, we're moving on. So last but not least, Tinkerbell. So how did Tinkerbell get in this talk? Well, first of all, it turns out that she's kind of a controversial figure. Um, I, <laughs> I found out. <laughs> the, the, the Tinkerbell that I thought I was remembering was from the early Peter Pan movies from the 1960s before all of you were born. Um, <laughs> but I, Disney's probably not done a good job with her, is my guess. Um, and also, I, he- I understand I have a, a selective memory of hers. So basically, my memory of her is, is this fairy who does magic things. So you can think of her that way. Um, <laughs> is she really not like that? Is she way off? <laughs> is she way off of that like way off no it's not too bad <laughs> I told you it was subjective I said they were all subjective at the very beginning <laughs> so what happened how Tinkerbell showed up is um, I was doing this practice a year ago um, when I was in the mountains in my, on my self retreat and um, it's, it's a practice called feeding your demons from um, Sultram Alioni, I'm sure I messed her name up, but anyway, she's a Western Tibetan nun. And basically, you, you put the aspect of yourself that um, is very wounded, and you, you feed it nectar, like you imagine feeding it nectar and love and everything it might possibly want, and you feed it. And then at the end of the practice, you, you ask for an ally, somebody to help you. So I asked for an ally, and um, Tinkerbell showed up. And I was like, my first thought was, can I have a second choice? <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to do serious spiritual practice here, and like Tinkerbell shows up. You can't be serious. Um, but nope, it seemed like that was the one. And then I wasn't sure I was going to put it in this talk. I was talking to one of the teacher trainees in the training. I'm like, Bruni, I just don't know about this, you know, like. I got a reputation to <laughs> to maintain, right? And she's like, Rebecca, you can't leave Tinkerbell out. And I'm like, oh, okay. So what is Tinkerbell? Hmm. She's um, the aspect of, of lightness, of, compa- of um, magic, and of spunk. And over time, I've come to see the power of this archetype and how much we need this quality within compassion. So let's start with spunk. Tinkerbell's pretty spunky. I think I do remember that. And I think we might need a certain amount of spunk to be truly compassionate. Not too long ago, a book came out, um, some title with joy in it. It was... um, It was um, a week-long meeting between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So they were meeting for um, the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, and they got to—they're really good friends, apparently—and got to speak, spend a week together, which was so rare for them. And so the book is about their conversations um, around joy. I think of those two as real embodiments of compassion the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And they've both known a lot of suffering. There are no, um, you know, they haven't been protected from it. You know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was um, in charge of the um, Commission for Truth and Reconciliation in Africa after the, um, uh, South Africa after the apart- end of apartheid. Um, well, the theoretical end of apartheid. And you know the Dalai Lama. The two of them, that book, you just felt spunk like coming through the book, like on every page. They're so spunky, <laughs> teasing each other and, and uh, joking. And um, yeah. And, and you know it has something to do with their great big hearts. 
that there's a relationship there, even if I can't quite totally follow how it works, I know it's there. Desmond Tutu, he's known to, he loves dancing. There's stories of him at fundraisers and stuff, just boogieing, you know, he loves to dance. So what perhaps Tinkerbell tells us with her spunk is that even though there's suffering, we can still dance. And she reminds us not to take things too seriously. Now, by herself, if she was the only archetype we were using for compassion, that wouldn't work because it would be maybe superficial or disconnected or detached or, um, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be full. But with the other three qualities, she's a great balance. She helps us not to get bogged down and to see that there's a bigger picture. We never know what will happen. So that's her mystery aspect. She's got this mystery magical aspect in that we don't know what's going to happen. When there's suffering, we so much assume we know what's going to happen. But Tinkerbell reminds us to keep our minds and our hearts large and open to possibility, to not knowing, to kind of the unfathomable mystery of it all. And she can even be a little sassy while she does it. So it saves us from getting caught in our narrow view. You could say she's one kind of manifestation of the equanimity part of all of the Brahma-viharas. So we have um, metta, compassion, and appreciative joy. They're all undermined. They need as their foundation equanimity, the great heart and mind that can hold all of it and hold it without attachment. So that's part of the, the lightness of Tinkerbell is that largeness, that letting go of attachment. And so with our own practice, when um, we find that we're bogged down by suffering, first of all, we can just open it up a little bit and realize there's a bigger picture. You know, right when we're suffering, it gets very narrow, but that there's a bigger picture. We don't know where it's going. We might not know what it is. It might be a mystery. Even, Even the act of turning towards suffering it 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 um it's so powerful to do it without knowing where you're going so so often we'll turn towards suffering and be like okay um i'll be with you if you go away in a little while <laughs> and um that's not usually super successful but we will try it a lot of times for a long time um but we get quicker at recognizing what we're doing. <laughs> and um, what's it like to go to meet suffering because it's the truth of the moment with no idea what should happen? Like whether it should stay or go or... There's mystery there. There's possibility. There's magic. Because something does happen. As somebody said the other day, like the act of observing, it changes things. Awareness changes things. In a positive direction, I would say. Because it's a wholesome quality. Okay, so now it's clear why Tinkerbell's part of the four, to help us not get overwhelmed, overcome, and bogged down by suffering. And so at times we might, um, and I'd say just, we're not going to talk about this now much, but uh, when we face outward suffering too in this world and around us, we never know what's going to happen. We can be so sure that we do. 
And Tinkerbell reminds us that amazing things happen unexpectedly. I don't want to mention too many because I don't want you guys to start thinking about it. But amazing things start with a single text or... I just read um, the, autobi- uh, the memoir of the, one of the, fa- uh, the founder, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice um, Coolers. It all started with a friend writing her an email and putting the hashtag Black Lives Matter. You know? That was where it started, and now it's changed the conversation in this, this country. That's magic. That's Tinkerbell. Don't know what's going to happen. So at different times we might need to call on different um, ones of these archetypes or these energies or these qualities within our own heart. So um, sometimes we might need the warmth of Mary to soften our hearts, to melt the ice mountains. At times we might need the power of Tara, that strength and, and fierceness and dignity. to remind us that we can hold this. Or at times we might need Quan Yin to remind us that we can do something, that we can respond with skillful means. And at times we might need Tinkerbell to touch us with lightness and spunk and magic. Our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. Our hearts become warm and powerful and responsive and spacious. You could say that's the four summary, four four words summarizing these faces. Warmth. Our hearts become warm, powerful, responsive, and spacious. Sound good? (laughs) You up for it? Learning this? (laughs) This is what we're learning. It's so important that um, in our spiritual path, it's really important that our path has heart. That's what we're learning, a path with heart. in this um, meeting that they had with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu at the end, the, um, the interviewer, somebody interviewed and wrote the book, uh, he finally plucked up the courage to ask um, the one question he really wanted to ask the Dalai Lama. He said, what is the meaning of life? His holiness flung back his head and roared with laughter. There's his spunk. (laughs) Then he grew intensely concentrated and still. The meaning of life, he said quietly, leaning forward to touch my forehead with his, is to embody compassion. Anyone can discover this. When you discover this and live it, you discover your truest nature and share its joy. just fit for a minute or
May our hearts grow strong in the warmth, power, responsiveness, and spaciousness of compassion. I'm sorry we don't have time to chant today because the kitchen doesn't like it when I make you late to a meal (laughs) and it's 5.15, so we'll go to dinner.